Welcome to We Got Balls, real, raw, masculine sex talk with Chris Inman and Scott Cohn. Chris and Scott both work with men who want to leave their unwanted sexual struggles in the past. They are willing to do whatever it takes to help men get curious about what drives their compulsive sexual behavior. With that said, here we go. Well, hey guys, welcome back to We Got Balls, and we have a very special episode today. Today we have a guest, our very first guest on the podcast. We've got Joseph from Texas. Hey, Joseph, how you doing today? Good, Scott. Always great to see you. Pastor Chris, blessings, guys. Glad to be here. Absolutely. I am officially ordained. <laughs> there we go. So um, thank you for being with us, Joseph. And one of the things that we talk a lot about on this uh, podcast is we talk a lot about story. And so we wanted to take the opportunity to bring you listeners the story of some stories of some other men who um, have had their own struggles. And Joseph reached out to us and was willing to have this conversation boldly and bravely um, on the internet. And so, Joseph, we're really grateful that you're here. And uh, we'd love to just sit with you for a few minutes and talk to you a little bit about kind of your story and how you uh, came to struggle in the way that you particularly struggle with your issues. And so just um, just sit back. And, and as I always tell the guys when we're doing story work, just take a deep breath because we just want you to be present with us. Thank you, there it is, right on screen. Taking that deep <laughs> breath in and making it reality. Let it out slow. That's it. So Joseph, uh, let's start with the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your home life growing up. Tell us about mom and dad. I had a really, really rough childhood. Mm. Um, my father was a drug addict, alcoholic, Mm. It was very physically and emotionally abusive. My mother was clinically depressed, who was as well emotionally and physically abusive. Mm. Um, I, it was very scary to be home because of all the abuse that I endured. Um, I think my mother was more emotional, but as we got older, she got more of the belts, um, hangers, whips, mm. cords, etc. Mm. My father would physically use his fist. Um, I know one of the the worst times that I had um, was my father came home three or four in the morning and pulled me out of bed and beat me so bad that I had bruises from the bottom of my neck all the way down to my legs. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and the problem is I would run away from home I know we yeah. like we talk a lot about defaults, so running away was my default. I would run away for two or three days as say a five year old, a six year old. Wow. And I'd be and I'd be hungry. Mm-hmm. So I'd come home already knowing the expectation that I would be beat for running away. Mm. But at least I would get something to eat. Um, but there'd be other types of consequences like my mother would lock us in our room or in a closet, uh, without to say dinner. So, which I think prepared me for prison because I went 24 days without eating. See, so wow. it, it kind of, see how that works out. No, um, yeah, you you were ready. You'd already had a childhood prison experience. So, yeah. Hmm. And so at the age of nine was when I first, it was recommended that I'd be placed in a psychiatric hospital. Mm-hmm. And so I was removed from the home at nine. Um, very periodically, I would come home because I would act out again, not in a sexual way, but I would act out behavior. 
Um, I would go to like a convenience store and steal something. Um, I think I just did it subconsciously because at home, it, it just wasn't a safe place. Mm. You know, I was cool. just constantly abused. Um, and, and so I really spent the majority from the age of like nine to 17 in and out of psychiatric hospitals, um, foster home, boys homes, state institutions. Um, at one point they thought I was schizophrenia. Um, they just didn't know. But as, as I look back on my life, I was acting out with the negative behavior based on the reaction that I was getting from my mother and father. Sure. Can we um, can we just take a step to just honor what you just said? Like that's I got some tears coming to my eyes, and I I've known Joseph for a long time, and I had him do an adverse childhood experiences score test, mm -hmm. and he scored a nine, which is out of ten. Hmm. That's about as bad as you can get of a childhood, and uh, it's heavy what you just said, all of that is really weighs on my, I feel it in my body and my chest. And you know, I, I always tell people, Scott, Chris, I'm so grateful that my wife was able to grow up in a God fearing home where her parents loved her, mm. where she had a safe place where she could grow up, you know, whereas me, it was a fight for survival, mm. you know, and both of my parents mm. were past now. Um, and it's ironic that I had a lot of anger toward them. Mm. It really came after I went to prison because <clears throat> not that I blame them for the choices that I made, but I understand too, that the way that they raised me and my brothers contributed to the choices that I made. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Know. Yeah. It sets, it's the setup, right? And, Kurt Thompson, a Christian psychiatrist that we like to refer to sometimes on this podcast, says in, um, mm -hmm. we come into this world looking for somebody looking for us. And when we don't find him in our family, yeah, we'll go look outside. So, Joseph, with that being said, um, and I know this is a, a sexual arousal podcast, so, you know, you've got a sexual arousal story. What did you find? What experiences did you have in your childhood, young teenage, or even young adult years that made you feel connected and wanted and seen? Well, I, I think one of the very first sexual experiences that I had was I was 13. Mm -hmm. I was living at a Christian boys home in Michigan, mm -hmm. and my roommate was 17 at the time. Mm -hmm. I was definitely 13. And he gave me oral sex. Mm. And so that was the first time that I had an orgasm. Yeah. Um, and and it, it felt weird. But at the same time, I felt that connection. Yeah. And, but there was actually an yeah. earlier experience with a girl, wasn't there? Yes. I was um, eight, nine years old. There was a, a, a teenage girl in our apartment complex that had forced some of us boys to perform oral sex on her. Mm. Uh, and um, it was literally forced, you know, it wasn't like a choice. Yeah. 
and uh, we didn't know you know we didn't know what to do or anything else like that so it was a very scary situation sure and and it felt like there was a a violation but also a connection because that's something in your arousal template that's still there isn't it oh very much Yeah. yeah i um my desire to give to perform oral sex on women um and i've always struggled with that um why why is that always like in my intimacy why does that have to be a focus mm-hmm. i mean how old were you and you see you see the connection between the early childhood experience that's really abusive right she's a teenager She's coercing you into performing oral sex. Correct. You don't even know about sex at that point. So this is really confusing, but it's arousing. There's this combination of confusion, arousal. You said scary. All of these different emotions, all those neurochemicals that go with that, and those hormones, stress hormones, and it's creating this incredible, intense cocktail around arousal that you're going to seek to kind of continue to repeat that over and over again. Because you don't understand what's going on. Because I've I've tried to figure that out, and I'm like, why is this? <laughs> well, you're a child, and that imprints on us. All of our childhood experience imprint. They mold us, and it's a desire that's baked so deeply. It doesn't. It's not logical. This this has happened to me. It was something. I mean, I think that's the word I'm hearing when you're talking about your early sexual experiences, they were something because before that you had nothing. And so at least this is something that I can find some feeling or meaning or pleasure in because the rest of it has just been chaos. Well, to put it more succinctly, you grew up in a hostile environment. You grew up in a desert barren from any emotion, hostile to your existence and these sexual experiences were a cool drink of water in that barren desert. Even if they were laced with poison, they're better than no water. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And I, and I didn't mention this, guys, is that when my parents would beat me, especially my dad would do this, he would always say, mm-hmm. oh, I love you. Mm-hmm. And so I would always say to myself, if this is love, I'd yeah. hate to see if you hated me. You know, I'd, I'd be dead. Yeah, uh, you know, um, multiple times as a child, I tried to take my life because mm. it was just too bad. And as you can see, I wasn't successful. Right. Thank God for that. Uh, Amen. But but that's how I equated love as well by being beat. So having the physical abuse and then saying that you love me. Um. And one of the things that I had discovered after the incident with that that young man when I was 13 was masturbation. And 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 so I had discovered probably when I was 14, I struggled with chronic masturbation to the point where I had sores on my penis. Wow. And my dad was shaming for that. But I didn't realize until later on that I equated that to try to soothe from the pain. And so I was mm-hmm. substituting the pain with the masturbation. 
but it, but it sounded like you were combining those things. I, you know, you were loving yourself, but it was so painful to love yourself that you're like, I'll do it even to where I have sores on my penis. You're, yeah. you're punishing yourself while you take care of yourself. And I still struggle yeah, with yeah, that today, yeah. not masturbation, but Absolutely. With, loving, with loving myself. Um, I struggle with that because yeah. I didn't even know what love was. Matter of fact, the day before I had to, had to make a commitment to my attorney prior um, to go into court to decide if I was going to plead guilty or go to trial, my wife asked me, she says, do you love me? Mm. And to be honest with you guys, having two master's degrees in theology, a four-year degree in Bible, I didn't even know. I didn't even know what love was. Yeah. Authentic love. I did not know what love was because I don't think I had ever lived it or had it. Mm. I had it from Heather, but I didn't know because the things that I had, the love that Heather gives me and had given me um, was abnormal. Mm. Because as I mentioned earlier, guys, my dad and mother would beat me physically or emotionally destroy me by calling me a bunch of names. Um. And then tell me they love me two minutes later because they feel mm. guilty of the abuse that they just oh, did. Yeah. But it was it was my 13th or 14th month in prison that I had finally discovered what love was. Mm. And the greatest moment was that I could write my wife and tell her from prison, you know what? I do know what love is now because of your example and your testimony. That's great. But for 41 wow. years. I, I could tell you all about love. I could write a thesis on it up here, but I wasn't right. Yeah. Right. But it yeah. was, it didn't connect the heart. Yep. 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 Is in, is in intellectual love, not real love, you know? Yes. Yeah. And I think me going out there looking for these anonymous lovers, um, was trying to maybe define what love was. Yeah. Well, so tell us, that. tell us more about that. Yeah. Sir. Turn the corner here and let's go into your, how did your sexuality kind of develop then and go out of control? Well, it, it, it started, I, I mean, it clearly started when I was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. Some of my guys in the Navy took me to Mexico because I was stationed in San Diego. Um, and my heart was to, um, to say a virgin until I got married. That really was my heart. I'd given my life to Christ at the age of 17. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I really, you know, um, my spiritual dad, Jim never, you know, was um, really sexualized things, but he, he encouraged me. He says, Joe, you know, stay, stay pure until you get married. And that was really my heart. But I've always succumbed to peer pressure. And so I had some of the guys um, take me over to Tijuana. And the first couple of times we went over there, I didn't succumb to the temptation. Mm. Um you know, um, but eventually I did, I did, um, succumb to the temptation and I had sex with the Tijuana hooker and that was how I was introduced into sex. So that was your first time that you pursued, even though you were encouraged and kind of goaded into it, you, you pursued a sexual experience of your own. I did, but I think the pressures came more from the prostitute approaching me. Really? You know, you go in there just to have a drink, and then the ladies come to you. A little bit different in Mexico than in America. Um, but, yeah. You know, they make it very easy with yeah. the with the hotel on top of the bar. And, 
Yeah, and it, so it was something about that experience that, you know, wanted to try more. Yeah. You're yes. looking for somebody looking for you. Yeah, I've always wanted to be accepted. I, I struggled mm-hmm. with that. And I, and I still do today. Not like I did back yesteryear. But, but I do want to be accepted. Mm. You know, I don't, and it, uh, being, of course, accepted is the opposite of rejection. I don't want to be rejected. Well, you're made by a, a triune God who's a we, not an I. And part of how he makes us in his image is to be a part of, to belong, to want to be accepted. You're never going to get away from that. But, you know, clearly you didn't get that in your home. And so you now you find it with a prostitute. What happens from there? Well, being in the Navy, as you know, we travel all over the world. And um, I would I would meet different women. And at this point, it was just women uh, throughout, you know, wherever we went. I would be on the hunt for women. Um, and um, as as Heather would say, my sex capades. Mm. Uh, but then, but then when I got stationed several years later, I got stationed in Virginia. I met Heather and, you know, we were intimate, but I didn't look outside mm. of that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't until I entered seminary or maybe shortly before where I was introduced to chat line chat mm-hmm. rooms. And, and from chat rooms, I was introduced into other rooms where you could have the camera on and, and have cyber sex. Mm-hmm. And it, it progressed from there to where I started meeting women online. And then once I got, once I found um, the massage parlors, it just kind of went crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and every time, it just seemed like I would get deeper and deeper and deeper. So in that experience, in that, in that experience, Joseph, what, so was, what a- was it that you felt like you were looking to find? I mean, you had your, your wife, and, and trust me, this is not a, everybody's had these struggles, so this is not just a you thing, but you, you had your wife, you had the woman that you loved and still love, but yet the, the hunt was on for some experience through chat rooms and video chat and massage parlors, what were you looking for? I think I was just looking to be accepted. Mm. I've been working through this for eight years now. Um, and because I was never accepted when I look back at my childhood, I had an older and a younger brother. Yep. My mother favored my younger brother my father favored my older brother. So me being in the middle, you know, I was just there. And, and I always felt rejected. Mm. And, and so I think the biggest thing was, and, and that's why I think I fell in love with the prostitutes because I was paying. Yes. But I knew I would be accepted for yeah. me. Yep. You it feel that for those 15 or 20 minutes, that person accepted me. Yes. With the facade, it wasn't real, as we right. know. But as in those that, days, right. As it all is. It's all unreal. So, yeah. But yeah. yeah. It felt like it. But, 
But there's also an aspect of your kind of your family setup and your the way you acted. You had those sexual experiences as a child that's being replicated in the anonymous sexual encounters. Like they're very intense, right? The hunt. You talked about the mm -hmm. hunt. I'm looking for something. Yes. And there's a thrill to that that cannot be replicated right. in your sexual relationship with your wife. They call that a supernormal stimulus in psychology where the sexual stimulus is heightened by the adrenaline and the cortisol that's released when we're doing something that's risky, it's dangerous, it's outside of the norm, it's a violation of our values. And we feel that stress combined with sexual arousal and it heightens the sexual arousal to the point where we end up preferring that over partnered sex. And that was a big part of what you were looking for, right? Yeah, I definitely was. And like I shared with you earlier, Scott and Chris, I got more excitement, more dopamine and other chemicals by actually looking for somebody. Mm -hmm. I mean, I recall, I be, I recall when, you know, when I was at work spending four or five hours looking for somebody on Craigslist mm. and the chemicals got so much at some point where I went to the men's room to relieve myself yeah. to go masturbate. Yes. I was so excited, you know, about trying to find someone. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners can identify with that. So, and you've referred to this a bunch of times, Joseph, but I think it's important because you did find, as you said, you found love in prison. What was it like to go from, the hunting and the looking to feeling like you're hitting rock bottom in that jail cell for those 15 months. What was that experience like for you? It was, it was rough. Um, but I had, I was fortunate where I had 15 months of, of my sin coming public to the time that I had started my incarceration. Mm. And this is what I want to give us. Got a, a shout out to Scott because in those 15 months, he extremely helped me and, mm. I, and I've said this and I'll say it to anybody. He really was instrumental in saving my life. Mm. So I think having that foundation was key to my survival because the reality was, and I'll say this before, because um, after my sin had came public and I was arrested, what I didn't know is I was blasted all over the news mm. at the time of my sin. I was an educator and um, and so I was arrested, of course, and I didn't know my wife bailed me out. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking of what lie am I going to get out of this? Like, you know, I'm thinking of lies. Yeah. Like, what, what am I going to tell my wife? The shame was so heavy that I had already predetermined that I was going to shoot myself in the head when I got home. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so when I got out of jail at about four in the morning, I had to be back at court the following morning at eight, um, which I didn't even know Heather had bailed me out. And, and, and so I went home. I had my keys, of course. I, oh, I took a cab home. I call it the $40 cab ride. Mm -hmm. I'm writing a little book about my story. And I call it the $40 cab ride because that's what it cost me to come home. And I went upstairs. My twin girls were sleeping on the couch because they were like eight or nine. I kissed them. I went up to our bedroom to grab my pistol to take my life, and mm. I couldn't find it. 
Heather had got rid of it. And I tell you what, I'm so grateful for that because I wouldn't have been here today if it wasn't for her and her mm. wisdom. Um, but, but, but so I had that time of starting recovery and starting a pathway of, of changed behavior of, of making healthy choices. And so when I got to prison, um, from the jail course, um, and we'll say this because Scott reminds me all the time of God's grace through all this, this process. And, and, and so the, the, the grace of having that time of in recovery and learning principles and walking through this mm. and understanding why I made the choices that I made and taking responsibility and the consequences that I, that I deserved. But my time in prison and how I survived uh, was that I literally used my story, which is really countercultural in prison because everybody kind of keeps to themselves. Yeah. But it, I figured if I'm going to take ownership, I need to be vulnerable because that's one of the things that I learned yes. is as men, we need to be vulnerable in a safe place, right? Prison is yes. not a safe place. But yeah. I, I, I was able with the gift of discernment to be able to discern and build relationships with men. Mm. And so while I was in prison, I met a guy who was in prison for a sexual crime as well. And he played college basketball and God just connected our hearts. And he was a Christian as well mm -hmm. in ministry as I was. And we just kind of became accountability partners while we were in prison. Mm -hmm. And we would meet for Bible study every day, talk. Um, it was at the point where he actually finally opened up to me before I was transitioned to another unit to do my rehabilitation program. And, but he's just one one person, you know, I would connect with other guys and other guys would open up and share the story. It's ironic because nobody would do that. Mm. You know, it didn't come without, you know, people would come up to me and not a lot, but several men would come up to me and call me Chomos and which is a child molester. And they mm. threatened to hurt me or beat me up or shank me. And, but through this process, I allowed God to strengthen me and I trusted him. Mm. You know, matter of fact, I had I had problems for being a Jewish, for being Jewish mm -hmm. than I did for being a sex offender. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like, a you know, that that you were set up and you opened yourself up to do that work and that that was kind of the best intensive you could have been on that 15 months of being in a desperate place, but also realizing that you had a path forward. And I think um, when we think about that, when we're talking about um, recovering from our, our sexual brokenness, which we all have in some way, we're all broken sexually, whether you're asexual or compulsively sexual or um, you, you're not connecting in the way that you want to connect physically, but especially with the people who are engaging in our audience, there's a lot of, a lot of that just sexuality. So how... How in the in the months since in the years since your time out have you continued to walk out that journey of recovery that's been so instrumental in changing your life? Well, there's several things, um, and, and of course they change throughout your progress and your growth. Sure, but one of the things I have I call it a fear hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So when I'm tempted um, to act out. The fear hierarchy shows me that, number one, I have a fear of losing my wife and family. Mm. 
So I don't want to do anything because, and we didn't talk about this, but the con- the consequences that our family endures because of our sin, of our sexual. Yeah. And I didn't count the cost when I was acting out because it was all about mm. my um, my selfishness and and my appetite to feed my own need. Um, mm, and I yeah. never counted the yeah, cost yeah. to my wife and my children. Um, and the things that they miss because of my sin. Mm. But, but when I, so when I have the thoughts of sinning, of acting out sexually, the first thing I think about is my wife and children and mm. things that I have already caused them. So I don't want to go back and do that. And I don't want to lose my family. But there's yeah. a second thing. I have a fear of going back to prison. Yeah. And so I don't want to, I don't want to. I'm growing. I don't want to make the unhealthy choices and I don't ever want to go back. I hated who mm. I was. You know, mm. I don't ever want to go back there. And so I don't let the shame and guilt of the past choices and my sin of yesteryear dictate that. So do I, am I so tempted? Yes. When I see a young woman, or, yeah. but, but I put a stop, you know, I tell myself, no, I used to do it verbally like stop, stop, stop yeah. when I first started. Now I just tell myself in my mind, stop, stop, yeah. stop, right? Um, I have what they call an environmental manipulation, which means that I need to change my environment. Um, this is the first year in, in eight years that I went to the water park. My daughter is a lifeguard at the local water park here. Mm-hmm. And so I w- it's always been a boundary of mine not to ever go because I just can't go to water parks. But I was mm-hmm. able to go to the water park with my wife and, and, and be fine and be not tempted. Mm-hmm. So that mm. was encouraging. It's good. That's uh, good. That's good. So you have to change your environment because, and for me, it was never hanging out with wrong people. You know, I didn't have toxic yeah. relationships. Yeah. No, I call, I call sexual sin, the white collar sin, kind of like gambling. Mm. Nobody knows, you know, um, my sexual yeah. sin. I mean, Heather still couldn't believe how I could do what I did. You know, mm. where she like, where'd you find the time? You know, we're very good as we know. Right. We're very we're creative. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can find the time if we want to. But I think what you said is true is why am I doing this? Yeah. And, and and what's my motivation? Well, and, and I would even say this even deeper. And, and you've you have talked around this, but I'll put a, pin, a point on it. When I find a purpose to my life, which is I want to be with my wife and kids, I don't want to go back to prison. And every man, every woman has a God-given purpose that is unique to them. It is it is a big healing balm to that compulsive sexual, compulsive addictive behavior that we might have because we do have a reason to not do it because there's something greater for me. So... Scott, any good. Well, in other words, we, we switch alliances, you know, as guys that struggle with compulsive sexual behavior, our number one alliance, our number one loyalty in life is to our orgasms. That's where we go. So you've got to come to the point where you name that and you see that my most important relationship is with sex. Do I want to continue having my most important relationship be something that's as fleeting as a 15 second orgasm if it lasts that long? And if the answer is no, then I've got to I've got to change my loyalties. I've got to make that intentional decision. And 
the only way I can really do that well is by engaging my story, like you've done today, is to look at where did this come from? How did I get here in the first place? How did I get to the point where sexuality is my most important thing in life? And if I don't want to continue doing that, I'm going to have to adopt a posture of kindness and care towards my own self. Because if everything else is going to change, I have to change my posture towards myself, first and foremost. And you've, you're learning to do that, aren't you? I am. And I've got a long way to go, Scott. But yeah, I've definitely made a lot of progress. You know, and that, I think that goes back to just having my brain developed with what I thought love was, being abnormal. Mm-hmm. You know, being physically abusive, being called a bunch of derogatory names by your parents. Mm. who's supposed to protect you and love you. Yeah. Um, you know, and and so I have to relearn, and I'm relearning what love is. That's great. You know. And I, I go back to there's so much beauty in your story in terms of redemption and goodness. And I go back to that scene where your wife asks you in the courtroom, can you love me? Mm. And you answer her, I don't know. And you didn't say this, but I'm going to say it because it just gives me shivers. And you said to her, you need to just divorce me. And she said, well, Mm. unlike you, I keep my promises. Oh, man, that that cuts to the heart. That's hard. That's a hard word. But the fierce... But the fierce love that's in that statement, and she does love you. I know your wife. She loves you. And your family has stuck by you and your friends stuck by you. And you learned to love by being loved Mm. at the worst possible time in your life to love you. What does that feel like? It's scary, but it's awesome because the acceptance that I was looking for in the midst of the unhealthy and toxic relationships I'm getting mm. from the real people, you know, who, who know me and mm-hmm. love me because, and they know the worst parts of me yet. They still, yet they still love me. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'll tell you this, Scott, on the 13th month of my sentence, I had, I read through the new Testament every month when I was in prison and I've read through the old Testament, um, every six months. Because that's all I basically did was watch football, watch and read my Bible. When I was reading John for the thirteenth time, I got to John chapter twenty-one, and where G- the resurrected Jesus had that conversation with Peter, and, and it's a very familiar story to even the novice Bible student. When Jesus asks Peter three times, "Do you love me?" Mm. and it was reading that for the thirteenth time when I was in prison that I could answer the question the light bulb went off mm. and I wrote my wife a letter and I need to find it. Cause she kept all the letters I wrote her and I wrote to her and said, baby, I finally know I can answer your question that you asked me so long ago. I do love you mm. because, <sighs> but I didn't know what love was. I could like, like Chris was saying, I could tell you it intellectually. I could tell you the four Greek words and the definition. And all that shit. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's all that stuff that we think that's what love is, is, is doing and saying the words. But you're you're learning to experience that love from 
other guys that you walk with, from your wife especially, from your daughters. And that is the love that you've longed for your whole life. That's the love we've always longed for our whole lives. And I had it from day one when I met my wife. Hmm. But I lost it because I didn't realize what I had. Yeah. It took me it took me falling into sexual yeah. sin. It took me going to prison. And then I finally at the age of forty one, I finally discovered what authentic love was, even though I had it. But I didn't realize I had it. Mm. Because I never knew I never knew what it was. Mm. Right? Because yep. what I thought love was rejection of abuse. And orgasm. Uh, right. Oh yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. love. Yeah. Yeah. That's all I need. Well, Joseph, uh, we're so grateful to be with you and your story. I just honored that you would be vulnerable with us and with our listeners. And, um, so thank yes, you, brother. Good. And we uh, look forward to connecting with you more and more. And, uh, guys, as you listen to Joseph's story, if you've heard anything that resonates with you, this is an invitation for you to tell your story. Um, We've all got stories, and and I promise you, in Joseph's story, there's probably another uh, ten hours that we could sit and process through all the things that have gone on with Joseph in each of our lives. But until we take the time to begin to start writing it out, to start investigating it with people who we trust that can help facilitate that work, we're never going to heal. So um, this is an invitation for you. Um, and there are links below and at the, on the end credits for where you can begin to do that work for yourself. And we want to encourage you to walk with us and to see exactly what Joseph has seen. And we all seen the love that we were all meant to experience. So uh, thanks for being with us for another episode. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Joseph. It, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll talk to you soon on the next episode of We Got Balls. Take care, guys. Blessings. Bye, guys. Don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. You can connect with Chris at PornFreeMasculinity.com and with Scott at SuccessfulMen.com.